Greetings, people of Earth. My name is Michael O'Neill, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. On this program, we examine ideas and concepts and discussions specifically through the lens of the Green Party and its allied movements. And this is a very special episode of A Green Way Forward, which repeat viewers and listeners already know. They can already tell because I'm giving the introduction instead of my co-host, David Cobb, who usually introduces the program. And the reason I am speaking to you now is this is, in fact, a special episode of A Green Way Forward because I'm going to be bringing to you a conversation that I had with Siobhan O'Loughlin, who is a volunteer with a group called Volunteer Refugee Support Europe. And Siobhan is going to tell us about some time that she spent as a volunteer providing direct solidarity and aid to refugees in Greece who were fleeing the conflict in Syria, but more recently, very recently, in Tijuana, providing aid and support to refugees who uh, have come to Tijuana as part of the so-called migrant caravan. These are refugees who are seeking to enter the United States as part of uh, a, an effort to create a, a better lives for themselves and in fleeing uh, violence and economic deprivation. And, and of course, they are being met with violence and militarization at the border. And our militarization of the border and the economic exploitation of the Western Hemisphere is a policy that certainly predates the Trump administration, but has been escalated by the Trump administration, and Siobhan's uh, bearing witness to that, I think, uh, provides some amazing context for that crisis at the border, and I'm very happy to be able to present that conversation with you. I've known Siobhan for many years. She is a dedicated movement artist, actor, theater producer, activist, campaigner, and so uh, please enjoy this conversation that I had with Siobhan O'Loughlin here on A Green Way Forward, talking about solidarity at the border. Siobhan, welcome to A Green Way Forward. And I want to thank you so much for joining us so that you can uh, help our audience uh, understand uh, what you've seen and what you've borne witness to at the border and with what's happening there and the violent repression happening there. But before we get right into that, I was hoping you could tell me and our audience a bit about yourself, uh, how you came into movement work and some of the work that you do, and then uh, how you came to be a volunteer with Volunteer, volunteer for Refugee Support Europe. Great. So, um, so my name is Siobhan, and I'm one of those lucky people who has activist parents. So um, I was raised by uh, two people who are really passionate actually about um, social movements and political theory. So I, um, I grew up with that kind of, my parents both have spent time in Palestine um, and have done a lot of uh, social movement work in the U.S. So that's actually how I came to be in the Green Party because my dad is a political science professor and has multiple books on a bookshelf at home, including many by Ralph Nader. So I read Crashing the Party when I was in high school um, and I registered green uh, as soon as I could register to vote. So 
doing activist work in multiple um, movements has always been just a big part of my life. Like since I was in high school, I was sort of motivated to, you know, do a lot of um, uh, queer um, activist work and animal rights and things like that, that um, were super accessible to me in high school. And um, uh, since college, I've done more citywide and campaign work and um, volunteering in lots of different um, avenues. So, uh, so yeah, so that's just been something that is just as important to me as career things and, and work things in my life. Um, I got involved in uh, work with refugees actually in 2016 um, after the, uh, the crisis with um, Syria was sort of imploding. Mm-hmm. And um, I was on Facebook and I was a nanny for many years in New York. And there was an organization called Carry the Future that had a Facebook photo that was sort of circulating. And it was um, for uh, the, the organization was meeting women at the, um, at the shore in Greece and providing them with child carriers for their babies because people were arriving with their babies in cardboard boxes and, you know, whatever they could to like make this massive move to Europe. And um, so this organization was trying to help women and families, you know, brothers, uncles, um, whomever uh, to carry their children. And I was like, I was like, Oh, I can teach people to do that because I've raised lots of children as a nanny. So I, um, I worked multiple angles to try to get involved as anybody who's done volunteer work probably knows it's not as easy as you might think it is to like get involved with something. But eventually um, there was an application process and I was able to apply and I spent quite some time in Greece in the summer of 2016 um, with this organization, carry the future where I was actually traveling to multiple different refugee camps in Greece and doing sort of children's like program. I actually ended up bringing my ukulele and trying to provide like some sort of music and entertainment for kids um, and some involvement because, um, you know, they were calling it the lost generation because children had no education, not even, I mean, talk about education, but also like anything to do all day, every day. Wow. So, yeah. So it's, um, so that was what I was doing there. And I met, and one of the camps I was with, it was in Alexandria, which is really close to Thessaloniki um, in Greece. And uh, in Alexandria, there is a great organization called Refugee Support Europe. And what they do, um, uh, sort of their main thesis of, of work is providing aid with dignity. So they're at existing refugee camps and they're trying to see how they can give people some some levels of comfort and humanity that NGOs and the military of these countries are likely not providing these people with. Right. Um, either, so, either they're not equipped to do that or it's not a priority for them at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and both of those things are really, really true mm-hmm. in, in my, in my experience now in two different countries, I would probably say that's every country with, uh, with refugees living in tents. Um, so, so yeah, so they were doing things like, um, you know, if trying to find folks who had a, a skill like, Oh, okay. Like you're a tailor, you are a cook, you, there are things that you can do, um, you know, from the residents of these camps. Like, so we can try to build you a place where you can provide some of these skills in, in, in the camp. 
um, and things that volunteers could get involved with, like organizing a store, which is not a store, but mm-hmm. essentially they have the folks have tickets that they can come in. And um, we've got clothes set up by size and by style and by, um, um, you know, just use of mm-hmm. things you might need. And you can come in and it feels like a store and you can sort of get what you need and it's really organized and orderly. So your life has a little bit more similarity to what it used to be you're mm-hmm. treated you have you're provided with more comforts and more possibilities you know hot meals that are actually like nutritious and like mm-hmm. cooked with some care as opposed to like a you know a sack that's arriving right. to you that doesn't that isn't really um nourishing you and isn't really making you feel like a person right you know so they um still operate out of multiple camps in greece um the crisis is still uh um, pretty bad, obviously, because we know Europe has essentially shut the doors to Mm -hmm. more, more folks coming in. Mm -hmm. So we've got, um, uh, thousands of, of refugees in Greece, um, without anywhere to go. So they are still there doing that operating out of multiple camps. And, um, John and Paul, the folks who run this, um, this organization, they had decided that they were going to be and to go to Tijuana. Um, they essentially, um, the main focus was to express solidarity. Um, before, we, before we get to Tijuana, I just want to um, unpack for a moment. Um, so the time that you spent in Greece at this refugee camp, that was your first time doing volunteer work, solidarity work in a refugee setting? That's correct. So how was that for you? I mean, what were, and, and especially what were some of the things that you picked up from that experience that you saw maybe that you saw translate into the situation on, on the border at, at Tijuana. I mean, yeah. I've known you for many years as a, as a fantastic uh, actor and producer of theater and someone who has, <laughs> right. um, in, you know, always incorporated uh, your, your radical uh, philosophy and, and your, your movement worldview into the theater and the culture that you produce. Uh, you mentioned that you brought your ukulele to the border, uh, pardon me, to, to Greece. Um, were there any other aspects of, of your, your other life as a, an actor and a per- performer and a, and a producer that you were able to put to work there? And what were some of the challenges that you experienced? And, and what did you see uh, that, that people who've never been to that situation just would never know? I mean, um, I think, yeah, so I think for me as an artist, mainly it was just sort of like playing music and teaching, essentially kind of leading sing-alongs or dancing circles with um, with children. I think, uh, yeah, it was definitely my first time doing this kind of work. Um, and I think something that was really important for me that I understood being there and that I think, and that, I mean, this is where there's divergence between these two experiences mm-hmm. I've now had, but like the folks in Syria... Um, and, and Iraq, um, mm-hmm. as well, cause there were with Syrians, Iraqis and, um, Afghans. So, um, Syria is special and Iraq as well. I'll say, um, these folks used to live as we do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was meeting doctors, tailors, teachers, mm-hmm. um, scientists, you know, people with jobs and lives who had homes and experiences. I mean, Damascus had a nightlife, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was a place where people, um, we're, we're living comfortably before everything came down. And so you're meeting people who are extremely educated and um, lived lives uh, that were not in poverty. So 
it's a pretty serious like brain melt to then be living in a in a camp and a lot in a lot of cases intense with your entire family or sharing it with another family um or if you're a single young guy you're in there with five other single young guys mm-hmm. um and uh and in both cases i i think it's important you know I, we really focus on women and children like oh my god because it's really terribly sad to see women and children suffering because we know that they are immediate victims of war. Um, but I also think it's important to understand that yes, from all of these countries, we do have lots of single young men. Um, and that is because they are trying to protect their families back home. So they're, they're making the dangerous journey because the journey is dangerous Mm -hmm. and they don't want to put their wives and children Mm. through that journey. So I think that our, our kind of fear tactic in the, in the culture of observing refugees is like, Oh, all of these dangerous young men who are terrorists, terrorists and drug addicts, like actually they are, um, they're just as vulnerable, Mm. you know, and there, and there were camps that had a lot of um, young men who would sort of be the last to get, to get moved mm-hmm. because they're the last, they're seen as the lowest priority. Right. Um, but they are people who are victims of war and they are young folks whose lives have been taken mm. just as much as, you know, as any, as anyone else. And so I think like understanding uh, that these people, um, who these people were before they were refugees. Right. Um, and there's this, uh, I, there's this great movie. It's called Salam Neighbor. Um, but it's, it addresses that issue of like, yeah, you know, all of a sudden, so once you cross this border, you're a refugee right. in your lives, your lives, you're, you're that completely. defines you. Yes. Or, yeah. Or at least that's and how I, institutions now define you. That's right. So now your life is like totally in the hands of, of someone else. Mm. But you may so, never see. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Or you meet people like me, mm-hmm. a lot of people from Europe, you know, who mm-hmm. you understand are volunteers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they're feeding you and right. that's how you're getting food. You know, so I think it's like, it's really, um, it's really important to understand that um, a lot of babies are being born on refugee camps. Uh, yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. In Greece, they were all they were basically all having C-sections because you, yeah, mm. because you can schedule it. Okay. You can do it in the hospital. Wow. Do you really want to have a baby in a, you know, 115 degree tent in the middle of like a desert in Greece? That sounds dangerous to everyone involved. Yeah. yeah. So you want to try to schedule a C-section Wow. because that's going to be your safest means of giving birth. And I'm sure that's just one of immeasurable knock-on effects of how people's lives are transformed or how they're altered by, by being in this alienating, disorienting situation. Absolutely. And, um, and the health of the babies is really, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, is really in jeopardy as well. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the mothers are not super healthy anyway. Right. Um, so you've got babies, a lot of at-risk babies mm. and premature babies and, um, situations that are, um, yeah, dangerous for, uh, for everybody. I mean, the, the living conditions are really hard. Um, the bathroom situation is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that as a volunteer, I would ask other volunteers, like other women, 
you know, mm-hmm. um, dealing with all of the things your body uh, deals with as a woman. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so like, what do you guys do for the bathroom? And the other women would say like, oh, we just, we just hold it. Uh, like we just wait. So this is what the volunteers yeah. are saying. Right? Like we wait until we're off camp. Mm-hmm. So if you're a woman living, if that's where you live, there is no off camp. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Right. So if you're deal, so, um, so that, so those issues are really, really um, mm-hmm. challenging. It's also in the, in the um, refugee camps in Greece, um, the culture, the religious climate gets mm-hmm. more and more, um, fraught um because people are uh living in in high tension situations you're up against other people you have nothing to do like i need to be really clear about that like there is Mm. nothing to do so a lot of organizations have come to try to create like a women's space where the women can be alone for an hour together um you know activities for children this kind of thing um you know we've had situations where we try where we try to actually have opportunities for the greek for the refugee children to go to schools uh, in Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were things where that would be operating where the Greek children would be in school for half day and then we'd put the refugee children. But then there'd be a situation where, you know, one refugee has head lice. Oh. Well, now mm. no refugee children are allowed at the, at the school, oh, even though they don't go to school with the Greek children, right? right. Separate them completely. Mm-hmm. But then the Greek families don't actually want a risk of their children getting lice. So let's, so we can't have them at all. Right. So these things are, this is a very common um, situation uh, where essentially, and this is important to consider because you're like, Oh, well people or thought could be, you know, they're in, they're in camps. Um, they're safe. Okay. But like the, the, the people in these communities who live in these communities already don't actually want them to be there. And right. I think that, that 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 is the case in Mexico as it is in Greece. Um, that so, they are seeing the hindrance. These countries don't have money. Right. They can't afford right. all of these people. Right. Like they are not wealthy countries whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so the communities feel like it is. You know. So essentially, what's happening too is they're kind of becoming small ghettos, like mm-hmm. small, you know, impoverished communities that live on the outskirts of a town. Right. So this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs writ in the most brutal possibly possible language, right? So yes, they they're no longer in an active war zone, right? They're no longer yeah. actively being shelled or subject to barrel bombs or uh kidnappings or or things like that, but that's that they're in some relative safety of that still doesn't put them anywhere near what we generally think of as the kind of environment where human beings can be healthy and thrive and have their, their true needs met that, that makes us human. Right. And not just, just functioning animals or, or, or automatons. That's right. That's right. And there'll often be like a leader of the camp, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like a slum, right. Mm-hmm. So there's a slum Lord who's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, essentially where there's somebody who's got most of the power mm-hmm. amongst the residents of this, of this small you know, microcosm of a community, which is why I brought up the religious tension because the, so so like, you know, if we look at Syria again, Mm -hmm. um, you're not required to wear hijab, you know, women could go out, women, you know, would go drink, women could go do things together that is not really possible in this tight and really tense 
climate of a refugee camp. So it gets stricter and stricter, right? Mm -hmm. So women are more comfortable just wearing a long black abaya, which is something that, you know, cover is, is long sleeved and covers you to the, to the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and often we'll have a, you know, sort of a space for your head here, uh, just because it's just easier to be more covered and to be, um, to kind of try to fade than it is. If you might stand out, then people might say things about you. And, um, it's really, uh, it's much, your life is much more difficult because people are stressed out. And then people um, create uh, climates of extreme tension. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the religious uh, ferocity, I guess, is is stronger than folks were used to when they were back home wow. as well, right? I mean, and there and there's you know desperate situations create all kinds of complicated climates. Mm-hmm. So um, people are living in a under under high stress zones essentially the whole the whole time. <laughs> right. And, and I can, you know, I can imagine that, I mean, there are probably regional differences and possibly like pre-existing regional tensions or tensions that are coming out of the situation that they are fleeing that, that people are, are bringing with them into the camp environment. Right. I mean, totally. we, for someone out, you know, outside of that situation, like we, we think of Syria as just this one word country and so yeah. like, it's all, it's all Syria. Well, no, obviously it's not just all one homogenous group, right? The, even, even before the, um, the Syrian civil war, which itself is such a, a long standing conflict and, and tragedy that I'm sure it's, it's born like gen- an entire generation of other differences. But even before that, it would, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to trivialize the situation, but it would be like thinking that, you know, someone from the South uh, Boston and someone from uh, from Nashville, Tennessee are just like, well, they're just Americans. They have no differences between them and there would be no culture clash between them. Yeah. Um, So now I do want to get us to uh, to Tijuana and about your most recent experiences there. And so. You've you've already mentioned some of the differences between uh, the camp that you were in in, in Syria and, and where you were in Tijuana, but there is one point of similarity that I want to highlight for our audience, which is that we're talking about refugee crises that were both, at least in part or in large part, created by United really? United States foreign policy, right? <laughs> yeah, and, I knew you were going to say right, that's true, and the United States backing of of wars, both large and small and overt and covert and, uh, you know, authoritarian or, or fundamentalist regimes or groups. And so that is a, a common thread and we have to keep that in the back of our minds. Um, so tell me, uh, about, uh, how you came to, uh, go to Tijuana and, and what you saw there. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so essentially, when Paul and John decided they were going to um, Tijuana, essentially for um, their main goal was to ex- to express solidarity um, and to and to actually, you know, name these folks as refugees, right? Like the caravan, the whatever. Like these are people who are escaping um, violence and danger. They are seeking asylum. They are refugees, the same as 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 Syrians and the Iraqis and Afghans. So. Mm-hmm. What they did was actually um, sort of 
prompt their American volunteers because they've mostly got folks from Europe and the UK. Um, and so uh, they were they were messaging us and kind of um, like doing a, they did a Facebook post in one of our groups that was like tagging, you know, American folks, because it would be easier for us to obviously get to Mexico than their European people. And so I, I live this life that's very, um, you know, my, my theater schedule is random and my work is kind of like, you know, scattered. So I actually had some free time. So I was like, so, so when they, I kind of got the call, if you will, Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I'd actually love to go to uh, Tijuana. I actually have a friend there, a Mexican friend that I can stay with and and, and spend time with, which would make me feel safer and more confident. And so, had you been there before? <laughs> no, okay. never. All right. So yeah, so so I went, and um, I think so. The, the main one of the main differences that I was thinking about even before I got there is, you know, how I'm talking about the lives that these that the Syrian folks led before. Um, they were refugees, um, and how they used to have lives like 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 we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, with these folks coming from Honduras and El Salvador, they have never had what mm-hmm. we have, mm-hmm. right? They have never lived lives that are safe, comfortable, profitable, mm-hmm. easy in any way, right? So, so I think that that's something to to. Uh, understand about these folks who are coming here. They have they have been uh, desperate for a very long time. So um, what we ended up doing. So there's a uh, uh, so we've got you know five thousand people and growing right mm-hmm. all the time. So um, say that number again. I want to make sure our audience got that. Five thousand. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, most of these people are in a big sort of government run camp. Okay. And UNHCR is there. And I think like save the children and a couple of other organizations are there. So we, um, ended up actually working at a squatters camp, uh, really close to the board or actually right at the border, like at the wall, um, called Zona Norte. Uh, that's the area that it is. It's, it's near, um, it's called Benito Juarez stadium. So you can like Google it and see exactly where we were. Um, so this is a, a soccer or, you know, association football stadium, one, one assumes? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So there are um, uh, 500 squatters there mm-hmm. um, and growing of uh, folks who, um, who are staying at this camp. And um, they were receiving no aid, no uh, food, no supplies, um, nothing. So... Uh, we sort of decided that that was going to be the place that we would um, uh, that that we would work and and provide aid to and, and help with. Um, the first time I went there was with um, an awesome young activist named uh, Moises, who I called Mo, which they said was very American of me to instantly give him a nickname, but oh. we'll call him Mo. Okay. Um, he took me for a tour of the camp um, during the day. Uh, and I, I think it's actually really good information, something that he said to me because, so the wall is right there. Okay. The wall is right at the camp. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never, you know, like really looked at the wall or of course I haven't seen the wall in person. And he, and what he said to me was Siobhan, like this has always been there. You know, Mo is my age. So he's 30. He's Mm -hmm. like, I've always seen, I've always known this wall to be here. So this is really important. So this, he's saying this, this wall predates Trump. 
predates, predates Barack Obama. Yeah. Maybe predates George W. Bush and, you know, maybe even back further than that, that this is a, we're talking about a situation that is a, a bipartisan product of, of decades of, of the United States exploitation of our neighbors to the South and anywhere else, any other direction that we can manage to for the most part. That's right. And he, and he made very clear to me that the difficulties with immigration also existed under Obama. Mm -hmm. Right. So he said he understands that Trump is a bigger bully, Mm -hmm. um, but it has always been just as difficult to get over. So for everyone paying attention at home, (laughs) this viewpoint is not just Bernie bros on Twitter (laughs) playing uh, gotcha or um, oh, what's the buzzword that's been going along, uh, going around? Um, not uh, uh, you know, both sides ism, right? right? This is not just American ultra left both sides ism. This is the viewpoint of of the folks who are who are in this, right? Who are who are in Mexico and who are and who have been uh, living with or trying to aid or in this situation for a long time. That's right. So this is not a Trump or mm-hmm. Republican action. This is an American action. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it always has been as such. So the wall they're making taller or something, mm-hmm. you know, at this, at this border, but it has always, it's, it's always been there. And, um, and it's always been this difficult for, um, for, for folks to, uh, to, to migrate um, to us. So, yeah, so so that really struck me when he said that Um, folks have moved to this squatters camp uh, for one main reason that I can understand, which is that um, people are actually, you know, imagine this, like they're actually trying to work and Mm -hmm. make money Mm -hmm. um, and live in uh, in Mexico. So uh, the mayor of Tijuana has essentially said, "Okay, people can uh, people can work here if they want to. We have jobs now. These jobs. Not great. You're probably making like $9 a day when it, right? right? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, that's real, but you can have, you can get that kind of a job. Um, But these people have no money. Like they have nothing. They have Mm -hmm. nothing. So if they live at the main camp, they're going to have to pay for a bus to Uh. get in, to get their papers organized, to get some documents, to have a meeting, to you know, try to find a job. They can't do that. They don't, they literally, they don't have money for that. Right. So at the squatters camp, they can, um, they can walk. Now for my own understanding and possibly for our viewers as well, I want to, uh, kind of pin down this, this difference, uh, as someone who's never been to a refugee camp. So the main camp that is, if you'll forgive the term, the official refugee camp where there yeah. is a sort of uh, where there are NGOs and and where the government has has set aside space, saying like this is the military. place, the military. This is where refugees go, and right. and with, with everything that goes along with it. Now, where you were working is uh, nearby, but this is a squatters camp, and that this is not an officially sanctioned area for refugees to be living, but where people have staked it out and one assumes there's a kind of benign neglect or looking the other way from the surrounding authorities. 
and and that people have you said about 500 people so about 10 percent of the entire refugee population in the area and 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 one of the reasons that they come here is because there's a closer proximity to this work that you're describing is that yes do i got that right okay yep all right perfect and so again important as i mentioned before um it's actually was not the easiest thing to provide aid to these people because the police didn't want us to. Ah, because so not right? not so benign neglect. Yeah, okay, <laughs> less good, than yeah. benign. Okay, and 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 why do they not want us to? Because they don't want the refugees to be there. Right. Okay. So you know, like the uh, folks who might live in this area, which by the way was a rough area. Mm-hmm. Like I was advised by my Mexican friends to never take a cab from that area because it's not safe. Wow. Yeah. So it, um, so it's a rough, it's a rough space. Um, but folks who live in that area are upset about, you know, again, the, 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 the ghetto that has emerged now, just like LA, there's a lot of tent spaces around Tijuana of homeless mm-hmm. Mexicans. Right. And so this is important too, is like, this is a, a city that is not wealthy right. by any means. Even I guess there's a lot of money in LA, but there's a lot of neglected sure. Americans, you know, living in downtown Skid Row and things like that. And there's a lot of neglected Mexicans uh, in, in Tijuana as well. So mm-hmm. you've essentially got just a, a, a massive increase in homeless population, in desperate people um, living in tent cities you know, Mm -hmm. um, sprouting over this, over this metropolis. So, um, it's pretty complicated. Um, and so our first night we were like, okay, we just want to give them something. We're trying to organize a kitchen. We're trying to organize, um, how to feed people because they're, you know, we think there's a need. So let's just get some fruit. Mm -hmm. So, um, my friend junior, this, another amazing Mexican volunteer who like own, you know, work operates out of, uh, vans. So he's got like 15 vans that he does deliveries with. He gave us, he, he drove a van for us the entire time that I was there mm. that we could load with food. So we got there in the evening, um, and had multiple clashes with the police about where we could be, what we could do until junior was just like, I'm going to talk to them myself and like drove his van up and is like, I'm going to give this food out of the back of my van and then we're going to leave. And then that'll be it. Mm-hmm. So it's pouring down rain mm. and you know, part of our thought was like, maybe people are not going to want to leave their tents because right. it's freezing. Mm-hmm. It's like the evenings are like it is in New York now. So the, it's like 40 degrees. Also okay. at that point, how familiar were those people with the crew that you were with? Like, did they know you to, or the group no. that you were with to be safe or that this wasn't a no. trap of some kind or right. Yeah. I didn't. Mm-hmm. So, so it was, and it was just, it was our first day. So we were really kind of like, like four people, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. strong. And, uh, so we pulled, so junior just like, just like backed his van up into the center of the camp and we opened the doors and Mo and I started organizing the fruit. And, um, and so we had like bags that had apples, oranges, and bananas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like, that's what we had to give them. Mm-hmm. And that's what people got. So imagine how you might feel your level of enthusiasm over apples, oranges, and bananas. That's sure. what we're doing. So in this like 40 degrees, like pouring down rain, like, you know, 8 PM, probably mm-hmm. at night, um, we, our line was completely backed up of freezing cold, wet wow. people 
without shoes, people wearing plastic bags, people whose hands were trembling. But the need was so great Mm. that they were willing to wait for some fresh fruit because that's the first time they've eaten that day. So are they cut off from even whatever meager um, sustenance or or, personal care that's being offered in the, the main camp? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yep. So, um, so that was a pretty, uh, that was striking to me because we thought it's not hot food, you know, right. it's not actually going to like make you give you that much comfort. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but I think that that's like, this is the level of like desperation and hunger and need that these people mm-hmm. are experiencing. So, um, so that was a very, um, that was really striking uh, for me to, to witness that. So, you know, this organization, we got ourselves together and Mo's father is a pastor and mm-hmm. actually a really awesome pastor. He houses at this point, I think 10 Haitian refugees in the church um, who he under his care and who live with him and are able and, you know, for free and they use the kitchen and, and um, he's helped them find work living in Tijuana um, so he opened up his kitchen to us and, um, and Mo spoke to other members of the church and we actually had a good group of people who were able to, we raised money. We were raising money like as, you know, every day went by to be able to provide, uh, hot meals for these folks. Um, mm-hmm. and we tried to do it every day. We tried to be able to do it earlier because, because it was the first meal that they were having, um, uh, that day. So, um, so that is essentially what we, what we operated was a a kitchen Mm -hmm. where we would make enough food to feed 500 people. Um, and we also tried to provide other things like water, like fresh fruit, um, baby wipes so that people could have some sense of cleanliness, you know, after a day. Um, there's no shower. Another thing we did was we sort of bartered with one of the local sort of bodega types mm-hmm. that was right on the corner because they're charging five pesos for bathroom use. Okay. Oh, wow. So, so, right. so I, just a point that's very striking to me is that even by the standard of refugee camps, a North American refugee camp is less resourced, less, uh, humane, uh, less support from the surrounding areas than say a European refugee camp. I mean, it feels cruel to even compare them, but it's, it's just something that keeps springing up in my mind. It's like, I mean, in the, in the way that there are many elements of especially Northern Europe, uh, social democracy and, you know, universal healthcare and stronger unions and things like that. Like even on this level of, of, of how refugees are like just what their situation is, it's more desperate. It's more strained. It's more compressed than, than even a refugee situation in Europe. Is that a, yes. is that a weird comparison to make? Uh, no. And, and in this case, it's true. I will say that there are, um, there are squatters camps probably exist. Sure. You know, in Greece mm-hmm. as well. It's their kind of choice to do okay. that. There right. are always lots of reasons why you might occupy right. a, a space in, in that way. Okay. Um, so, but uh, that, yeah, that's so, helpful context. Thank you. Yeah. So if you are living in a squatters camp, mm-hmm. uh, you've chosen to do that, right? And they and the the powers that be mm-hmm. have the dis- 
discrepancy to say, you know, cool, then I'm, you, you've cut yourself off. from. And, and it further underlines how difficult that choice must be and how much they truly, like, they need this work. So in this situation, they're in the squatter's camp because it provides them with closer proximity to work. That's how desperate they are for it and that they're yes. willing to walk away or at least separate themselves from what little, like, paper-thin um, humanitarian aid that they're getting in the main camp. Yeah. And, um, and again, a lot of the folks actually in the squatters camp, we did have, um, women and children mm-hmm. who we always, who we always, um, you know, fed first, like no matter what time they showed up for food, like get to the front of the line. Mm-hmm. Um, this camp was mostly, it was a lot of men, a mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of men. And, and, and again, they are trying to work to be able to provide a, a more safe situation for their families at home. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, you know, folks coming independent of any responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's the thing is like, which again, we should not begrudge them if they were, if they came to have a better life to be safe from situations that right. they are in, you know, I mean, and that's the thing too, is a lot of like teenagers who might mm-hmm. be refugees are escaping cartels and drug, uh, violence, um, gang related violence that, um, uh, that is threatening their lives, right. you know? So, um, so that's, so, so we worked with a lot of men, um, who we were feeding and taking care of, who were specifically at uh, this camp in Arizona Norte. So I want to, you know, thank you for being so generous with your time and, and for relating your experiences with us. And, and in the time that we have left, a couple points that I'm hoping we can touch on is one is that it's, I think it's easy it's easy for myself, certainly, to lose track of the fact that these refugees who are at the, the Tijuana border, this was only the last leg of their journey, or the most recent leg of their journey, right? That started a long way ago. And uh, and how that, um, like, what people should should be mindful of. And, and also, in... Uh, your volunteer work, did you have a chance to uh, hear stories from people that you were working with, uh, either the fellow volunteers that you were with or or some of the refugees that you were working with to help that that might help our audience understand a bit more about the conditions that people were escaping from? So you were mentioning people, you know, fleeing from cartel violence and things like that for certainly many of our viewers who uh, try to pay attention to the news in a way that is aware of the violence that people are fleeing from, and especially the violence that is created or stoked by U.S. foreign policy. We have a a little bit of an overview from that, but if, if there are details or, or context that you're able to pass on to us, uh, I would be very grateful. Yeah, I can tell you a few, Um, you know, and and I think it's important because like if you you know have the privilege of like not really knowing what a gang experiences or what it's like to live amongst it. Right. Um, so this I is not like a, a teenage mutant ninja turtles gang <laughs> with people with like pink mohawks and like cool cut you know denim jackets. Right. This is this is different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so just living amongst it means you are in danger because okay. you might see something that makes you guilty. Just by, just by minding your own business, 
on a street because corner you on your way to work. It, wow. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you observe something, then you know information. And mm-hmm. now you are uh, a target, mm-hmm. you know, of this thing. Now, and observing something could be you trying to walk to school, to work, you know, getting now, off of the bus. Now, when you say guilty or putting a target on you, is that in the eyes of the gang or of the police or law enforcement or both? Both. Wow. Yeah. Well, because, because, um, judiciary systems, <laughs> justice systems mm-hmm. in extremely desperate places, um, don't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, uh, there's a book called behind the beautiful forevers, which is about a slum in uh, Mumbai and an undercity there that I think is, is really um, relevant to understanding how these systems work for people in extreme poverty in, um, you know, uh, the global South essentially. Um, but so police are paid off, mm-hmm. right? Justice is something can, that can be bought. Cool. You're innocent. You didn't have anything to do with this crime. If you, um, if you pay me X amount of money, then, I, then I'll believe that that's true. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'll tell the judge. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, this is, that's just simply how it works. Um, and so, uh, so there is one, um, situation with a woman named Kelly who is here with her two children, um, William and Jesus, they are three and five years old from El Salvador. Um, her mother, uh, uh, her mother was shot in front of her and her children, um, because her mother saw a, a drug transaction. She witnessed it on her way to work. It's okay, so like terrible. So if you know, so like if you know something, or if you know someone who might know something, mm-hmm. right? These are um, then you're then you're involved in the folds of this operation, and you are you could be used. Um, you know, well, well, are you going to snitch? How do I know you're not going to snitch? Right. What if the police offer you money to tell mm-hmm. to tell you information, right? Mm-hmm. To tell them information, rather. Um, there's another man named Marco who was here alone, who um, Paul interviewed. Um, his daughter uh, was being threatened by uh, by a gang um, for a similar reason for um, because because people's routes. I mean, I think NPR did a special on on women walking alone, you know, in mm-hmm. uh, in Honduras. And, uh, it's extremely dangerous. And so, um, so they were threatening her life and he actually, he actually tried to, tried to pay them off, tried to contact them, um, communicate with them to spare his daughter's life. And then they are threatening his life. Right. So he is trying to, so in other words, that means your child can no longer leave the house. Mm. Right. So he's trying to hopefully get to Canada where he can be able to work and get some money to bring her with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I met folks who were also um, deported from the U.S., who had lived, I met a guy um, who spoke perfect English, who had lived in uh, Vegas. He was raised in Vegas. He's been there since he was a child, but he wasn't born there. So he was working. He had a job. He had a life. And, so he was uh, a dreamer, essentially? Is this the... He was not a dreamer because okay. he wasn't born. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. He wasn't born in the U.S., so okay. he was kicked out. So, again, this okay. is a person who had a job, you know, mm-hmm. was contributing, paying his paying taxes, you know, was contributing to uh, to the U.S. and was booted because he wasn't born there. And now mm-hmm. he's, 
living in a, in a camp and getting food from, you know, being fed by strangers. So there's multiple um, situations and stories essentially where people are just escaping extreme violence by, by, by means of being, by accidentally falling into, into a fold. Um, now there are people too, who, who may have been involved, right. In some mm-hmm. of these operations who are trying to escape it, who it, didn't want that life in the first place, got caught up because they were in danger. And now, and, 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 and that is a horrible existence for them as well. And like, and I think that's something important to remember as well. And this is um, really important and because I know for myself, certainly it's really easy to fall into a mentality of, well, like there are the, the noble refugees or there are the deserving refugees. And then, and then that there are people who are maybe less deserving of help. That if you're, if your refugee status is not the product of, of tragic situations, then, then you're not maybe thought of, or depending on your perspective, you're that those people are actively dismissed or, or considered just not worthy of help. That's uh, right. And, and what, you know, there are shades of gray. There are many shades of gray here. And that, and that at the end, like these are all human beings. And as you said, who are trying to improve their situation. Yeah. And that is sort of the way we operate is like, you know, these all are different cases and all different situations. And we are just trying to acknowledge their humanity. And, um, and, you know, and we, and so we did things like we, we gave them, it was mostly like soups or rice and beans with a kind of protein or vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would set up like a salsa station so they could like flavor it how they wanted mm-hmm. to. And one of the things I did was actually, I would go through the line and like, hand sanitize everybody mm-hmm. and sort of talk to them and, and clean them up a bit before they ate to kind of help them feel just a little more like, like people right? Um, than they, than they are treated mm-hmm. most of the day um, or than they are um, thought of right. most of the day by Mexicans and Americans alike, because mm-hmm. the Mexicans there, Oh, and this is important information too. So like, you know, the Mexicans there have a really similar feeling as the Greeks as plenty of Americans feel, which is, this is not our problem. Right. You should be in your own country trying to fix your country. Our country has enough problems that we don't, we are unable to and don't need or want to take care of your problems. Um, as, as of when I left there, um, 950 work visas have been um, submitted to our refugees from and most of they're mostly from Honduras, but El Salvador is, is there too, Guatemala. Um, so 950 people. Again, this kind of work is you're looking at around $9 a day mm-hmm. that you could be earning. Um, so can you get off the street with that money? Right. Can you send money home? Mm-hmm. Especially <laughs> you when know? you have to pay just to use the bathroom. Right. 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 So that's one of the things we did is we, we got, uh, we started paying 500 pesos a day to let everybody use the bathroom. So really, so we talked to the, the guy who owns the shop, like, look, we'll just pay you and just mm-hmm. let them in, you know, let them use it. You're getting money. They're getting what they need. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of, you know, operation we're so, maintaining. So what would your response be to citizens of the United States who have that view that even if they are sympathetic to the circumstances that people are fleeing there, they believe that, well, the, you know, that's, that's a problem of 
their their country where they're coming from. And so that either they just need to deal with it or they need to find somewhere else to go. But it, it's not our problem here in the U.S. Yeah, my first my first response to that is um, uh, would to would be to ask them if they love if there's someone that they love in this world. Um, and if the person that you love is um, in immediate danger, mm-hmm. are you going to try to, um, I don't know, organize amongst your neighborhood and put yourself in danger? Are you going to try to, um, you know, fight or argue or, you know, practice diplomacy with the people who are putting that your loved one in danger? Mm-hmm. Or are you trying or would you want to put get them into safety as immediately and as efficiently as possible? What, what would you do? Do you have children? Are there children that you care about? Um, what would you do? What and lengths would you not go to? Right. To, yeah, to I mean, I know what I would safe. do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so if I think of it that way, then my response is, of course, of course I know what I would do. And of course I understand what they are trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I think at the very least, each of these people deserves a hearing in the U S they deserve an opportunity to, um, be granted asylum. The work that they would be doing that they want to do mm-hmm. is not work that's going to take away from anybody here. A lot of them even have contacts, um, in the U S you know, my cousin, my friend, my whomever, right. Right. Who they would be staying with. You know, like a lot of them have um, situations where there would be there's somewhere where they actually would be welcomed. Um, And as you mentioned, there are at least some whose final destination is not the United States. Right. (laughs) And and even if their destination is the United States, I'm fine with that. And we should be fine (laughs) with that. But it's just it it just tries to I want to further break the stereotypes that people have that this is just an undifferentiated mass of people who just want to settle down in, in, into the U S and, and soak up all of our, you know, schools and healthcare and resource, whatever, just that, that cruel Fox news caricature that people have mm-hmm. that, you know, these are people that, that have their own stories and their own ambitions and their own lives. And they are as, as diverse as any other group of people. And a quick Google search on, you know, cases and instances where, um, folks, you know, young men are sent back to Honduras, mm-hmm. um, you will find that they, uh, went home to die. Mm. I mean, you, you, right. I mean you, that, that's what you will find. Like they've, they, you know, deporting them, sending them back, sending them home is sending them to their death. And so, mm. um, if you feel like, you know, not my problem when we're talking about someone's life, um, you know, and Peter Singer uses this example all the time, uh, you know, a lot in his, in his, you know, theories on living an ethical life. And I think it's really pertinent, which he says, if you were by a train track and there was a baby mm-hmm. on the train track and a train was coming, um, you know, and there was a, there was a stroller or a carriage or a basket with a baby in it, mm-hmm. you would probably risk your life to save that baby. Mm-hmm. You would probably do it. You would probably try to do something to rescue that child on mm-hmm. the train track as a train is coming or knowing that a train will be coming soon. So just because you can't see it happening in other places, um, right. why does that mean that you shouldn't care or do something bold to try to 
to save someone else. Right. And to extend that uh, metaphor a little further, if you saw a psychotic behavioral scientist strapping a baby to a train track, or if your tax dollars or other money was funding a psychotic behavioral scientist who was strapping a baby to a train track, you would have an even greater moral obligation <laughs> to intercede and stop this mad person from strapping babies to train tracks, because that is what our country is doing, yes. uh, you know, either directly or indirectly. And That's 100% correct. And so um, now I, I don't assume that... Um, that you know, based on on your experience uh, in in the camp, that you uh, necessarily have a, a lot of great detail to offer on this, but I think um, I, I'm curious about the mechanisms in which the United States uh, policy on drugs and and our foreign policy, you know, regarding the Western Hemisphere, like how it created this sort of narco authoritarian state. Where people are, I mean, the the situations you were you were describing of if you you know, just by stepping outside your door and witnessing something, you could now be marked for death. That level of paranoia that that must engender, and that level of fear, I think, in our context, the United States context, we mostly would associate with like a 1984 George Elwell George Orwell situation. Yeah, but this is coming from a kind of you know. Um, narco uh you know uh, kleptocracy of uh, a th- quasi authoritarian situation and and so how does united states drug policy and other foreign policy fuel this situation and if it's not something you're super comfortable speaking on that's okay but if if you have any context to share again i i would be grateful and i think our audience would be too yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not super well versed in that. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, the Narcos uh, show on Netflix, I am told by Mexicans, is like actually accurate. So it's that kind of scary. Sounds yeah. like an amazing recommendation, and that's <laughs> that's what should appear on the marquee on screen. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah the people that... who have to deal with the results of this, you know, more directly, like they think it's accurate. So yeah, okay, yeah. that's going on my yeah. queue. Yeah, great. And I think, you know, it's, it's, I mean, in sort of a broad sweeping generalization, you know, our, um, uh, as a, our U.S. kind of policies and, and outlooks on these things that um, uh, certainly helps to um, dehumanize and stigmatize folks who have been involved in this, in, in these kinds of operations. We certainly do it to, um, you know, communities and poverty that already live in the U S mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and there's sort of this, this kind of, you know, I, I think I saw actually on the, on the wall as I was, I was driving, there was this big, um, it was painted in English and like teal colored said empathy. Mm. Um, uh, and it was, and it was huge and it was hand painted. And I, and I was thinking about that, um, that, you know, when you think about someone who might be, um, caught up, as it were, in in these kinds of operations, mm-hmm. um, understanding how that came to be, and why people might deserve a second chance, right, or might deserve the opportunity to break free of that and be safe from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the people who actually might be involved in these gangs are also victims. You know, and I think that that can be hard to wrap your head around because you can say, well. Sorry, I'm recovering from a cold, shockingly. Yeah, but um, you you might say, well, you know, I um, 
I've, I've managed to avoid being involved with, you know, drug operations my entire life. And I work really hard and I, mm-hmm. I pay my bills and I pay my taxes and, mm-hmm. and all of these things, you know, but, um, I think it's important to understand, uh, that these people in a lot of cases are also victims mm-hmm. of a dangerous and violent situation that I think um, is, is very difficult for someone like myself to imagine. Right. But if, if, if it, yeah. at the very least we can acknowledge that there's something there that maybe we can't, maybe I'm not capable of imagining, but I can still acknowledge that there's something there and that, and that in and of itself creates that, that urgency for, for, um, self for, for compassion and for empathy as you're talking about. And that actually, I don't, I don't need to, know what it's like and it's probably impossible for me to know what it's like i just need to know that there's a need there that we are in a we are in a position to help with that we can get that baby off the train tracks or or stop the madman from strapping a baby to the train tracks in the first place and we actually have an an obligation and yeah and and now how do we how do how is the problem fixed in honduras Mm. i i don't know I don't know how is, um, you know, what do we do? How do we get people to live comfortably in Mexico? I, I, I don't know. Um, all I can say is, you know, as an American speaking to what you're speaking to before, um, you know, this is because of us. Mm-hmm. So the least we can do right. is take people in, right. Give them a job dishwashing. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, really, right. really, this is, this is, this is what, what we're at. And I mean, we certainly have room and we certainly have more money than Mexico. Right. This conversation has flown by, uh, for me, Siobhan, <laughs> and I'm just, yeah, I'm so thankful, uh, for everything that you've shared. I want to give you an opportunity to present your final thoughts and what you'd really like people to come away from this conversation with. And especially if there are any resources in terms of organizations or, um, or sources of information that, you would like people to follow up with to deepen their understanding of, of the current situation, uh, both, uh, in, in Tijuana and in the border with Mexico, but, but also, uh, with the ongoing crisis in Syria and the refugees who are fleeing from there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so I think the main thing is like, is understanding what a desperate situation looks like. So some Mexicans were saying, oh, well, you know, we've, we've donated people, you know, they get clothes donated to them and then they throw them out or whatever, or then they're on the street and things like that. But mm-hmm. like, if you understand the life of a homeless person, if you can't take it with you, right. Where then- do you, yeah. Where do you keep your clothes? Where do you keep them? There's no, exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. Right. So a lot of misinformation will be, will be like, you know, channeled to you about how people are ungrateful Mm. of um, donations or food Mm. or whatever. I can tell you where I was, food did not go to waste. People were waiting in the pouring freezing rain for an apple and a banana, you know? So like that, Mm. just please imagine yourself ever doing that. I would not do that. I don't, you know, I'm not that desperate. I'm not a desperate person. Um, And so I think understanding the levels with which, um, it takes for folks to be doing this. Like, you know, it, it's a ridiculous, it's, it's, it, you know, and some people say, well, why would you bring your children? That's horrible. It's a dangerous journey. Imagine how bad your life must be if you're going to drag your child 
across the borders of multiple countries to try to get to a better place. Imagine how bad it must be Mm -hmm. and how unsafe you feel if that's what you are doing with your children. A lot of folks um, don't expect themselves to enjoy their lives, have a good life. Right. They're trying to help someone else. They're hoping their children have a better chance at, at, at a life. Right. You know, than they ever did. Yeah. So Has- think- hashtag live your best life means something very different <laughs> in those circumstances. Oh my I God. Suspect. Yeah. They're never yeah. going to really assimilate right. the language. They'll, they might, you know, the Spanish have a better Spanish speakers have a better opportunity at grasping the language than folks who speak Arabic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like good luck. It's mm-hmm. really, really hard to learn English. If you've not, if you haven't learned it, you're, you know, well, you're, yeah. It makes no sense. It's a, it's a hodgepodge of, yeah, it's ridiculous. Super difficult. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think, I think there's always a counterpoint to arguments against these people. Mm -hmm. There's always this level of understanding what it is like to be desperate. You know, it's like, you can't bring a toy onto a refugee camp unless you have toys for everyone, all the children. You just can't do that because they will beat each other up over a toy. Wow. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if you bring a toy for every child, one child might try to hoard five of the toys himself sure. because he's right. desperate and scarcity of resources mm-hmm. means that you are going to try to look out for yourself. I mean, you know, these mm-hmm. are, these are like, this is a mentality that, or it's I, just a kid being a kid, right? <laughs> I mean, there are, there are kids who that's are surrounded true. by toys who will like still want five copies of a toy that's being handed that's out a in a, in that's a middle a really class classroom point. environment. So that's yeah. a really good point too, mm. but they will beat each other up over a soccer ball if there's not enough for everybody, you know, and that is something that I didn't understand before getting there of like, just, mm. you know, just how, how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, I don't know what kind of resources I have. I think you can, um, there's some, or, you know, an organization that's still doing great work is called in Greece is called the Karam foundation. Okay. K A. R-A-M. Mm-hmm. Um, if you follow Refugee Support Europe, um, you can, on Facebook, and we have, you know, the website, you can see a lot of the stories um, that come from volunteers uh, who are sharing things they've learned. On our page, there's, you know, there's a lot of, on Facebook, there's a lot of photos. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see the kind of situations people are, um, people are living in. Um, you know, and I think, uh, I think for me, and what we would say to, you know, when Paul was being interviewed and things like that, and things that I would say when I talked to a lot of Mexicans who really disagreed with the work I was doing, which like the Mexican activists who were with us um, were very, uh, you know, controversial to other Mexicans, right? Because wow. they're like actually helping and encouraging and, and you know, reaching out to these, to these refugees who are not wanted by the general population. Um, you know, I don't have the, all of the answers. I don't have even all of the information about all these people, but, um, it's really important to see their humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, these are people who are hungry. These are people who are in danger. Um, they are in danger in a way that you or I, Michael will never be. Um, and probably most of the people who are watching this will never be. Mm-hmm. And so I think having that base level of understanding, like we have to choose compassion. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's the most important part of how you look at these people is, um, is with compassion. Well, thank you, Siobhan, 
for that and for giving us some insight into what you've witnessed in, in these different contexts. And I have come away with it, I think, with a, um, a hopefully better understanding. I, and you've, you've shared a lot that's very powerful, and I think that will it's giving me and I'm sure our audience a lot to think about. And oh, I'm so glad. And, Thanks. <laughs> and this is a, a great kind of kickoff to, you know, what I would like to see as, as, uh, you know, more episodes, uh, and, you know, possibly speaking to, you know, other people from refugee, um, or volunteer for refugee support Europe and, uh, and, and other folks that you've worked with there. And so just thank you for all of that. I'm very grateful. Oh, I'm, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm speaking as a, as a volunteer and someone without all the, all the heaps of information, you know, maybe further up the chain, but, uh, but yeah, I'm glad if I could, um, any, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to talk about what I know. So thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. And, uh, we'll be right back. And that was my conversation with Siobhan O'Loughlin she spent some time very recently in Tijuana at the border uh, between Mexico and the United States, providing direct aid and support to refugees there with the group Volunteer Refugee Support Europe. Siobhan is an amazing creator of theater, and she's a performer herself, and her work is steeped in her commitment to grassroots movements for peace, justice, and human rights. I want to thank you for staying with us for this time. Please do check out our website, agreenwayforward.org. Again, that's agreenwayforward.org. You can hear podcast archives of this episode and other episodes. Please do sign up for our email list. That is essential to find out about future episodes of this show and also developments in terms of new places where you can hear or watch this program. I want to thank my co-host, David Cobb, and everyone else who watches and shares this program. Again, my name is Michael O'Neill. Please do check us out at greenwayforward.org, and we will be back on January 31st. Uh, the next two Mondays are a little special because the following Monday here is uh, December 24th. Many people will be celebrating Christmas Eve. I will be visiting my family in Ohio. So we will not have a show on the evening of Monday, December 24th. We will have a show on December 31st, New Year's Eve. And David and I will pre be presenting a year in review, a 2018 very special episode of A Green Way Forward. Please do join us for that. Or again, if your New Year's Eve is being spent doing other things, you can check us out at agreenwayforward.org and watch or listen at your pleasure. And then we'll be back with a live show, a live stream the following Monday, where we will be talking about the Green New Deal, and what's the kind of Green New Deal that we want to fight for as eco-socialists, as Green Party members, or just as an interest for people who are allied with the Green Party. So I hope you will join us for our Year in Review episode on, Chris, on New Year's Eve. And David and I will be monitoring the chat and comments as we can during that. So there, there will be some interactivity there. And then we'll be back with a fully live live stream that following Monday, uh, the first Monday in January. 
Until then, bye. A Green Way Forward is produced by David Cobb and Michael O'Neill. Go to agreenwayforward.org for links to our podcast feed and iTunes subscription, plus more ways to listen. Our live stream is graciously hosted by the official Dr. Jill Stein Facebook page on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The music for this episode is Keep Sit Real by Player 2, available under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.